0: Hello and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 7, Free Agency, Remaking Supervisor Liability in Farragher versus City of Boca Raton. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. In the spring of 1998, a former lifeguard asked the Supreme Court of the United States to grant her a simple request to make the city of Boca Raton pay her $1 for allowing her supervisors to sexually harass her. Although the monetary issue was small, the stakes could not have been higher. The court was asked to decide when a company could be held responsible for the harassing acts of its managers. The answer to this question would require extensive legal acrobatics and would dramatically. Reshape the workplace. The decision was a long time coming. If you remember way back to episode two, when we reviewed Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson, the Supreme Court delayed providing a standard for supervisor liability at that time. Instead of clear rules, it gave only a limited set of goalposts. The court noted that a company should not be automatically liable for its supervisory employees, and it vaguely directed courts to apply common law agency standards. This decision left the country open to a patchwork of rules with limited guiding principles. Over a decade later, the can could no longer be kicked down the road. The bill was now due. Both employers and victims of harassment pushed the Supreme Court to make a decision and provide clear rules. The Supreme Court was asked to choose between a strict liability standard and a negligence standard for supervisor harassment, which would have wide implications for the enforcement of harassment lawsuits across the country. But, recognizing that the rules surrounding agency principles were still unclear, the Supreme Court came up with a new standard that did not rely on traditional agency principles at all. In two opinions from the same day, the court issued identical one-page holdings. This new standard tried to find middle ground, where an employer would sometimes but not always be liable for the hostile work environments created by its supervisors. To do this, the court also crafted a famous affirmative defense which would require companies to adopt and implement extensive policies to prevent sexual harassment. The dissent caustically remarked that this opinion was willful policymaking, pure and simple. The Farragher Ellerth defense, as it is now called, was manufactured from whole cloth, they said, and still did not provide any concrete guidance to the lower courts. But was this really true? And how did we get to this point where the court needed to engage in such dramatic rulemaking? To find out, we need to start from the beginning, get our swim trunks on, and head back to the beach. The case began in 1985 in the sunny city of Boca Raton. Located on the southeast edge of Florida in Palm Beach County, Boca Raton glitters like a pearl next to Florida's beautiful eastern coastline on the Atlantic Ocean with two miles of beaches and graceful palms. A major tourist attraction, these beaches are constantly patrolled by lifeguards under the watchful eyes of the Marine Safety Division of the city of Boca Raton or as the lifeguards like to call it, the Beach Patrol. Bethan Farragher, would later recount that the beach patrol was a dream job. The pay was great, the hours were great. You got a one hour morning workout and a one hour lunch break. Who could ask for more? She began work there when she was 19 to help pay her way through college. However, this is not to say that there were not any problems with the job. As you might expect, the beach patrol demanded rigorous physical fitness. To get hired in an open lifeguard position, You needed to be able to swim 500 yards in the ocean in fewer than nine minutes, run a mile in fewer than seven minutes, and be able to conduct ocean rescues. To be honest, I would never make the cut, and would probably drown in the ocean right when I started. The beach patrol was also very hierarchical, and was run top-down like a military organization. Lifeguards reported to lieutenants, lieutenants reported to captains, and captains reported to the marine safety chief. The typical day involved a morning workout and shower. The chief, or captain, would then conduct a briefing at the Marine Safety Headquarters. This was a small, one-story building which had a locker room, an office for the captains and the chief, a meeting room, and a bathroom with one shower and one toilet. Things were packed very close together, and men and women shared the same locker room and bathroom. The male-to-female ratio was also highly disjointed. At any one time, there would only be four to six female lifeguards out of a total force of 40 to 50. When mixed together, the compact quarters and the disproportionate male to female ratio created a wild, boisterous atmosphere reminiscent of the movie Animal House. Although most of the lifeguards were respectful, Beth Ann Farragher reports that she began experiencing problems with two supervisors who began sexually harassing her when she began employment. The behavior was. Pretty extreme. Although I can't cover every allegation, imagine Baywatch, except you're in hell. According to Farragher, the first person who harassed her was a captain named David Silverman, who was in his 30s. Over 6 feet 2 inches and 225 pounds, he would reportedly pound on the bathroom door, making requests to come in and shower with her. He also owned a pickup truck with a camper in the back and propositioned her for sex on rainy days, sometimes in front of the other lifeguards to embarrass her. He would make crude and inappropriate comments, including negatively commenting about the size and firmness of her breasts, and expressing approval of her buttocks. He would also pantomime oral sex. On one occasion, while Farragher was on a morning beach run, he ran up behind her and tackled her to the ground, making further crude comments to her. The second harasser went even further up the chain of command at the beach, and was the chief of the Marine Safety Division, Bill Terry. As Farragher recalls, he was like God on the beach patrol, and supervised all the captains, lieutenants, and lifeguards. Farragher thought he looked old enough to be her father. He would reportedly touch, grab, and stroke various parts of her body, including the buttocks, breasts, thighs, waist, necks, and shoulders. He also made inappropriate comments that she was manlike, and that she didn't have a chest and noted it would be a cold day in hell before he promoted a woman to lieutenant. He sounds like a real charmer. Anyway, Farragher was not the only female lifeguard to suffer under this abuse. Another lifeguard, Nancy Uwenshu, was also targeted. She ended up becoming a co-plaintiff in the case, and reported that Terry would press himself into her from behind to simulate sexual movement and inappropriately touched her. Overall, nearly every other female lifeguard was hit on by Terry or Silverman in some form. Although this behavior was continuous and severe, Farragher and Uenshu never complained to higher management at the city of Boca Raton about the harassing conduct of either Terry or Silverman. But they did inform another lieutenant and training captain they trusted, Robert Flash Gordon, about this behavior. But unlike his comic book counterpart, this flash Gordon did not really want to stick his neck out. Instead, he told the women to be careful about going to City Hall. After U and Chu complained a few more times, he just threw up his hands and said, quote, I can't do anything, I'm powerless, the city doesn't care, and there is nothing that can be done, just stick it out, unquote. U and Chu also overheard Gordon telling Farragher the same thing when she complained, stating there was just nothing he could do. In 1989. Hu and Chu eventually quit the beach patrol to work for another lifeguard unit in Palm Beach County and for the city of Delray Beach. But one year later, she made a fateful decision and decided to write a formal letter to Richard Bender, Boca Raton's director of personnel, complaining that she and other lifeguards were being harassed by Terry and Silverman. According to her, she waited a year in order to pass through the probationary period at her new job. She feared Terry would call her new employer and try to get her fired. However, another theory speculates that she was really motivated by the city's decision to fire her then-boyfriend shortly beforehand. In any case, this letter started a chain reaction. The city began an investigation and called the female lifeguards to city hall one by one. Farragher and the other lifeguards were given little time to prepare. It also seemed like David Silverman had been told about the investigation beforehand. And when he notified Farragher that she needed to go to City Hall at her tower, he ominously informed her, quote, I guess you are going to do what you have to do, unquote. Farragher felt intimidated by all this. Once she got to City Hall, she was questioned in a room with four men in suits she had never met, while still dressed in her city issued red bathing suit, T shirt, and shorts. She endured countless questions about the humiliating experiences which had happened to her. Ultimately, though, the city determined that there had been some inappropriate conduct on the part of Terry and Silverman. The two supervisors were formally reprimanded in June 1990, but the discipline was relatively light. Terry and Silverman were given a choice between disciplinary action in the form of suspension without pay or forfeiture of annual leave. They decided to forfeit their leave. Now, as you might expect, Farragher was pretty angry about this outcome, and felt it was a slap on the wrist. She wondered why Terry and Silverman were still allowed to continue working for the city at all. Farragher ultimately resigned her position to attend law school. Because she disagreed with the city's resolution of her case, she filed a charge of discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, in the winter of 1990. She and Uenchu then attended a sexual harassment seminar sponsored by the National Organization for Women. Once there, they met an attorney named Bill Amlong. Bill Amlong had recently begun work as an attorney as a second career, having previously worked for the Miami Herald for 18 years. Because he seemed knowledgeable in sexual harassment law and was sympathetic to their cause, they asked him to file a case on their behalf. Now, the alleged conduct of Terry and Silverman was certainly severe enough to constitute sexual harassment, but... The bigger issue was showing the city should be liable for the harassment because of their conduct. The city claimed it did not know anything about this problem until it got Nancy Ewenchu's letter. This argument complicated the case and set the stage for all that followed. Reflecting on her lawsuit in 2005, Ann Farragher reports that many people have wondered why she did not formally report the harassment. Her response to this question is that she did report it to Flash Gordon, but she was discouraged by him from reporting the incident further. She was also unaware of any sexual harassment policy or mechanism to report the behavior. She did not know the correct person to turn to. She also feared for her job, and the ones she thought she should be reporting the issue to were actually the ones harassing her. But whatever the reason was, not reporting the behavior high enough up the chain of command had enormous implications for Farragher's case under Title VII. In order to hold an employer like Boca Raton liable for the harassment of its employees, it was necessary to show the city was at fault in some way for the harassment of its agents. But if the city did not order or sanction the conduct and did not know about it, how could it be liable? This was the central issue of the case. And unfortunately for Farragher, the legal landscape for navigating this problem was highly unsettled. As I mentioned at the beginning, in the 1986 case Meritor Savings Bank v. Vinson, the United States Supreme Court ducked this question. Instead of providing sufficient guidance, the court simply said there should not be automatic liability and told the lower courts to look to the common law of agency. Specifically, the Supreme Court directed the lower courts to read the second restatement of agency. For those that don't know, Restatements are detailed treatises that articulate the principles or rules for a specific area of the common law. They are written by the American Law Institute, a prestigious legal organization composed of noted professors, judges, and lawyers. Restatements attempt to synthesize and restate existing case law and statutes from various jurisdictions into a coherent taxonomy of rules. They're very important. Okay, that sounds simple enough. Just read the second restatement of agency, got it. But not so fast. This approach was not as easy as it sounds, and many hostile work environment cases were tossed out based on traditional agency law. Here was the problem. The restatement indicated that a master, or an employer, should be liable for the torts of his servants committed while acting in the scope of their employment. However, to act within the scope of employment, an employee's conduct had to be motivated by a purpose to serve the employer, and the employee had to be engaged in conduct that the employer expected of him. But typically, you don't hire an employee to assault or sexually harass another employee. That would be insane, right? That's not usually part of the job description. Additionally, intentional torts, like sexual harassment, are done with a purpose to benefit the harasser, not the employer. For these reasons, sexual harassment was frequently found to be outside the scope of employment. But this was not the end of the analysis. Liability might still attach under several general exceptions. First, if the employer intended the conduct, which would be rare. Second, if the employer had notice of the conduct and was negligent or reckless in allowing it to occur. And third, if the agent was aided in accomplishing their harassment by the existence of the agency relationship, then the employer could be liable. This last exception seems like it would be a good fit, and spoiler alert, it will end up being the springboard, but I want to make clear at the time Farragher's case started, this exception was not really viable. Courts had rejected this exception as a basis for imposing liability in hostile work environment sexual harassment cases Because the agency relation always aids a harasser. There was fear that the exception might swallow the rule. The Supreme Court had specifically said in Meritor that there could be no automatic liability for a supervisor's harassing conduct. If this exception was broadly read, it would essentially create automatic liability. So, courts held that a supervisor was aided only if harassment was accomplished by an instrumentality of the agency or through conduct associated with the agency's status. Under this exception, quid pro quo sexual harassment, where a supervisor offers or suggests that an employee will be given something of value, such as a raise or a promotion, in exchange for some sort of sexual favor, might be covered, but not in hostile work environment harassment involving abusive statements, touching, and behavior. Now, application of the restatement led to significant variability of agency law across the country. Courts experimented with different standards. A large portion of them went with a negligence analysis, when the employer knew or should have known that harassment was occurring. Knowledge might also be imputed in this circumstance if the employee complained to a manager who was sufficiently high up in the chain of command. But some felt the negligence standard was unsatisfactory because it was a much more lenient standard. Beth Ann Farragher's and Nancy Chu's case would be swept along in this complex legal morass. In 1992, their attorney, Bill Amlong, filed a lawsuit against Boca Raton, Bill Terry, and David Silverman in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida. Farragher sued Boca Raton for sexual harassment under Title VII and under state law for negligent retention and supervision. The women also sued Terry and Silverman for denial of equal protection under Section 1983, and Terry for battery. As the case progressed, Farragher was required to fly to Florida several times for deposition and a settlement conference, which went nowhere. In 1993, she moved to Colorado after graduating law school to go work for Denver's Municipal Public Defender's Office. By the next year, in 1994, her case had still not gone to trial. But then, one Monday morning, While preparing for trial with one of her own clients, she learned her case would be moving forward at 9 a.m. the next day in Miami. After getting her colleagues to cover her case as quickly as she could, she caught a flight to Florida. The bench trial would last four days before Judge Shelby Highsmith. Judge Highsmith had a military background and had served as chief legal advisor to the governor's war on crime program and special counsel for the Florida Racing Commission in the 1960s and early 70s appointed to the federal bench in 1991 by George H W Bush he also had experience as a state judge for its defense the city of Boca Raton enlisted the assistance of an attorney with Morgan Lewis and Brochius, Peter Hurtgen first exposed to labor law during his law school days he found the legal work appealing because it was people oriented he would one day become the chair of the National Labor Relations Board and then the Federal Mediation and Conciliation service under President Bush. Bill Terry and David Silverman also retained their own counsel. Numerous witnesses testified during the trial, including five female lifeguards, Robert Flash Gordon, Bill Terry, David Silverman, Farragher, and Chu. The evidence tracked many of the allegations we've previously discussed. Judge Highsmith listened carefully to everyone and then released a detailed opinion on July the 22nd, 1994, he concluded that Bill Terry's and David Silverman's conduct unreasonably interfered with Farragher's work performance by promoting an environment where female lifeguards were considered fair game for uninvited touching and offensive remarks. Looking at the totality of the circumstances, he found Terry's and Silverman's conduct sufficiently severe and pervasive to alter the conditions of Farragher's employment, and create an abusive working environment. Although Terry and Silverman had denied committing inappropriate conduct, the court did not find their testimony credible. Next, the court examined whether the city of Boca Raton could be held liable for its supervisor's conduct. He found that it could. Why? Well, first, under a negligence theory, Farragher needed to establish that Boca Raton knew or should have known of the harassment, Although the court found the city had no knowledge of this behavior until Iwenshu's letter was forwarded to the city's personnel director, Richard Bender, he had found that the conduct was sufficiently severe and pervasive to create an abusive working environment. Thus, in the judge's mind, the finding of pervasiveness supported an inference of knowledge, or constructive knowledge, on the part of the city, making it indirectly liable. The court also examined whether the city could be directly liable for Terry's and Silverman's conduct because they were agents of the city. He believed Terry, Silverman, and Gordon qualified as supervisors. Terry was the Marine Safety Chief, after all, and had supervisory authority over all aspects of the lifeguard's work assignments and other duties. David Silverman was a lieutenant and captain, and also had authority to designate work assignments, staff shifts, and supervise physical fitness routines. Flash Gordon had similar responsibilities. The chain of command suggested they had supervisory authority. Because of the nature of their positions, each of these men were agents of the city, and so the city could be found directly liable for their harassing conduct. End of story. With respect to Flash Gordon, he was told of the lifeguard's discomfort, but failed to report it. His knowledge could be imputed to the city too. As one final wrinkle... The city also attempted to argue that it had a written sexual harassment policy and should be excused from liability because it obviously did not condone this behavior. I mean, just look, it's right there in black and white. See our policy? But the court rejected this argument out of hand. The city may have written a policy down, yes, but what did they do with it? Judge Highsmith found a complete failure to disseminate this policy I mean, not even the supervisors were aware of it before the investigation of Richard Bender. The policy alone could not save the city, and the city was going to be liable for its agent's conduct. So, what about damages? What's all this about the $1 amount that Farragher earned? Well, compensatory damages only became available after 1991 for Title VII cases. The acts of Terry and Silverman occurred between 1985 and 1990. As a result, Judge Highsmith awarded Farragher only $1 as nominal damages. The statute just didn't allow him to provide any additional amount. Additionally, because Farragher quit her position, she was ineligible for reinstatement or other make-whole relief authorized by Title VII. Farragher was not completely out of luck, though. The court did award her $60,000 in attorney's fees. She also received $10,000 in compensatory damages, for her Section 1983 and battery claims against Terry and Silverman, and 500 in punitive damages from Terry. Although the $1 outcome on her Title VII claim was less than ideal, Farragher reports she felt vindicated by the decision that sexual harassment occurred after four years of hard litigation. But it was too early to breathe easy. The city of Boca Raton was not ready to throw in the towel just yet, and appealed the trial court's decision that it should be liable for its agent's conduct. Farragher and ewenshu also appealed the court's denial of some of their state claims. Thus, the case moved on up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. But here, Farragher's case began to fly off the rails. The initial appeal did not go well for her Title VII claim. A three-judge panel, led by Emmett Ripley Cox, rejected Judge Highsmith's direct and indirect theories of liability for the city on February the 8th, 1996. First, the three-judge panel found it was just plain wrong that the city could be directly liable in a pure, hostile work environment case with the simple finding that Terry, Silverman, and Gordon were agents. That analysis was much too quick, as Farragher's counsel even conceded. Instead, the Supreme Court and the 11th Circuit directed that strict liability should not be applied in a pure, hostile work environment setting where there was not quid pro quo sexual harassment. Instead, an employer could only be liable for the misconduct of employees committed in the scope of employment, as explained by the Second Restatement of Agency. The court did not find any evidence Terry and Silverman were acting as agents in the scope of their authority from the city, When they engaged in their harassing behavior. Again, that's just common sense. Why would the city hire managers to harass their other employees? So much for direct liability. But what about the district court's findings on indirect liability? The 11th Circuit found that decision was problematic too. Judge Highsmith determined there was constructive knowledge on the part of the city because of the pervasiveness of the harassing conduct but he also found Farragher did not complain to higher management at the city. How did that make sense? The question of notice to an employer was distinct and separate from the question of an environment's abusiveness. Judge Highsmith improperly conflated these two issues. Here, the lifeguards were stationed at a remote location on the beach away from the city officials. There was not evidence the city should have known about this conduct, regardless of how abusive it may have been. Therefore, the city could not be indirectly liable for the misconduct. The Title VII judgment was reversed. But the 11th Circuit wasn't done just yet. This decision lasted about three months before the 11th Circuit vacated the opinion in May 1996 and granted a rare rehearing with en banc review. As I've explained in other episodes, en banc review does not happen often and is usually the result of the need for an entire circuit court to review a complex or important legal issue. Rather than three judges, the case would now be decided by 12. Another year would also pass before a new decision issued in April 1997. The en banc decision of the 11th Circuit Court did not radically change, and Judge Cox returned to prepare the new opinion. This time, though, there was a much more extensive effort to review the second restatement of agency. The court again agreed that a hostile work environment case involved behavior outside the scope of employment. Indeed, as the court noted, Terry's and Silverman's conduct provided an archetypal example of employees stepping outside of the scope of employment and seeking to further personal ends. They then turned to the exception stating an employer could be liable if the agent was aided in accomplishing the harassment by the existence of the agency relationship. As I mentioned earlier, this exception was narrowly drawn, and the 11th circuit court explained the exception needed the harassment to be accompanied by the instrumentality of the agency or through conduct associated with the agency status. Here though, no person threatened to fire or demote Farragher for refusing to accommodate Terry's or Silverman's harassing overtures. Thus, this exception would not work. Farragher's Title VII verdict was reversed again, with 7 judges out of 12 in full agreement with the opinion. However, I do want to note that 2 out of 3 active female judges would have found the city vicariously liable and dissented from the opinion. Beth Ann Farragher had now lost her appeal twice, and her $1 award was cast to the wind. But the case was about more than money. Win or lose, she hoped to encourage other women to come forward and report harassment, so she filed an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. As a lawyer now, Farragher must have known this maneuver was a long shot, equivalent to winning the lottery. Farragher continued living her life, working a public defender docket in Colorado. But then, one night in mid-November 1997, after she returned to her office, she was informed she had a phone call. A reporter from a Chicago newspaper was on the other line and wanted to know her thought about her case being accepted for appeal to the Supreme Court. She was, understandably, shocked and had not heard anything from Bill Amlong. But what a thrill to get this news, I'm sure. Against all odds, her case was suddenly brought back to life from the ashes. Media attention now became frenzied. Beth Ann accepted assistance from the National Organization for Women to help spread information about the stakes in her case. The business community was also particularly interested because the outcome would determine how companies could be held liable for the harassment of their supervisors. Whether a negligence standard or strict liability standard carried the day would have wide-sweeping consequences for business liability risk. Oral arguments were set for March the 25th, 1998. Because she was a lawyer now, Bill Amlong came up with a brilliant idea. Why not humanize Farragher and file a motion to have her sworn in to the Supreme Court bar? That way, she would be required to rise and be recognized by the justices, and she could be ensured a seat in the section of the court reserved for members of the court's bar. It might give them just the edge they needed. What's really interesting about that, if you really think about it, is that it cost Farragher 100 times the $1 reward She won at district court just to get sworn in to the Supreme Court. Anyway, while she was being added as counsel to the Supreme Court bar, the city of Boca Raton needed to change counsel. On the day that the appeal was granted, Peter Hertgen got his own piece of good news. The Senate had confirmed his nomination by President Bill Clinton to the National Labor Relations Board, providing him an opportunity to set National Labor Union policy. He therefore needed to hand off the case to one of his partners at his firm, Harry Rossetto. Rossetto was also experienced in employment law and had previously worked as a law clerk with Chief Justice Warren R. Berger of the U.S. Supreme Court. On the day of oral arguments, Beth Ann Farragher brought her sister and best friend to Washington, D.C. Although she did not realize it, she had become something of a celebrity, being pointed out by onlookers at the courthouse. Reporters she had met at earlier press conferences also recognized her and waved. Even Justice Sandra Day O'Connor leaned over to comment to Justice John Paul Stevens when her name was called at the induction ceremony for the bar. According to Farragher, listening to oral arguments about your own case feels like an out-of-body experience. The Supreme Court justices had some sharp questions for Bill Amlong and focused in on what effects, if any, harassment policy should have on the case. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked if a policy against harassment with a procedure for reporting abuse would make a difference to the outcome of liability for the city. Bill Amlong suggested that it would not, because Farragher feared retaliation from her supervisors committing the harassment. This led Justices William Rehnquist and Anthony Kennedy to state that the position sounded really like strict liability, which they indicated was off the table. Bill Amlong noted that, in truth, it really didn't matter because there was no policy, but it might be considered as a strong mitigating factor. Amlong's shifting position seemed to confuse the court during oral arguments, but the key issue in the debate was whether the city could insulate itself from liability by taking steps like writing policies or whether it should just be on the hook for its supervisor's conduct regardless of any protective measures. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor seemed a little bewildered by the whole controversy and was skeptical of the relevancy of anti-harassment policies stating quote why do you need a special policy do you really have to tell somebody that if your supervisor is doing something that you think is wrong or improper you should talk to your supervisor's supervisor why do you need a policy for that unquote aside from this issue bill amlong also attempted to show that knowledge could be imputed to the city by the pervasiveness of the conduct This was not just a couple incidents of harassment. Multiple women had been targeted over several years. How could the city not know about that? Justice Antonin Scalia commented that the city's high-level managers were located downtown in City Hall, and all of this was going on across the highway at a remote location of the beach. Bill Amlong responded to this by explaining that they had told Robert Flash Gordon, who had a supervisory role and was held in high repute by the other lifeguards. They may have complained to him as a friend, but that did not take away his position with the city. When it was time for Boca Raton's attorney, Harry Rosetto, to speak, he did what you would expect. He praised the 11th Circuit's opinions and argued it correctly decided the case. Its negligence standard should be affirmed. A negligence standard, rather than a strict liability standard, was better for hostile work environment cases because sexual harassment was usually outside the scope of employment. He also asked the court to preserve the fundamental distinction between quid pro quo, disparate treatment cases, and hostile work environment cases. With the former, a tangible employment action usually happened. The supervisor discriminated by improperly using his position to fire or not hire the employee. With hostile work environment cases, though, there was not a tangible employment action, and the employee just went on a frolic to benefit himself, not the employer. Although this was a common way to frame the debate, Justice John Paul Stevens was a little skeptical. He noted that, in both types of cases, a supervisor performed his general official responsibilities but deviated from company policy. Justice David Souter also joined in, noting it seemed to him the distinction was based on an arbitrary definition. Rossetto responded again by trying to explain he believed that harassing activity was not related to supervisory authority and was outside the scope of employment. Toward the end, Justice Anthony Kennedy switched gears and asked Rosetto to provide the city's position on Robert Flash Gordon and his failure to report the conduct. Rosetto responded by explaining that the complaints to Gordon were not complaints and were not made with an expectation he would take the matter up. Gordon was not in a position to deal with Bill Terry. The city should only be liable if it knew or should have known of the harassing conduct Here, the leaders at the city did not know. Thus, the city should not be liable. After oral arguments finished, things did not look too promising for Beth Ann Farragher's case. The justices showed a real hesitancy to impose vicarious liability in hostile work environment cases, and it looked like the court would affirm the 11th Circuit. And then the case became even more complicated. And by complicated, I mean an entirely different lawsuit entered. The scene. Today, when we talk about the holding in the Farragher case, we also reference another case Burlington Industries Inc. versus Ellerth. The Farragher case and the Ellerth case were issued the same day and had the same holding and both appear side by side in the U.S. reports. The Ellerth case deserves its own podcast episode, and I can't go into it in detail because, well, we'd be here all day. But To briefly summarize it, a recently married merchandising assistant, Kimberly Ellerth, in Burlington Industries' Chicago office, alleged that she was sexually harassed by the Vice President of Sales and Marketing, who made offensive remarks and unwanted overtures toward her. She identified a number of incidents involving threats to deny tangible job benefits unless sexual favors were performed and ultimately sued under Title VII for sexual harassment. Unlike Farragher, she did not get a trial. A lower court dismissed her lawsuit after a motion for summary judgment was filed. This was because Burlington Industries had a sexual harassment policy. She had failed to use the policy, and Burlington could not be found negligent. She appealed her case, and it ultimately ended up with its own en banc review before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The decision which issued from this appeal became legendary. It was a 200 page tome in the Federal Reporter, the second largest decision in the court's history. In essence, though, the 7th Circuit tracked the 11th Circuit and other courts and found that a negligent standard should apply. Employers should be liable for hostile work environment cases perpetrated by supervisors only if they were negligent. Vicarious liability should apply for quid pro quo harassment. The size of the opinion shows, though, that this was a very complicated issue with very differing opinions. Now, The Farragher and Ellerth cases were not companion cases initially. They were argued one month apart and assigned to separate judges, Justice Anthony Kennedy and Justice David Souter. At some point, though, during the drafting process, light bulbs must have gone off, and the two justices realized they needed to coordinate their opinions. However, neither justice wanted to give up their case and give way to the other justice in this tug of war. Thus, the two cases stand side by side, and have identical holdings. It's very strange, and we refer to the affirmative defense they created as the Farragher-Ellerth defense. Both cases had large majorities. Only Justices Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas dissented. That Justice David Souter wrote the opinion in Farragher is somewhat ironic. His confirmation to the Supreme Court in 1990 was opposed By the National Organization for Women, with its president even stating she was afraid that he would end freedom for women in this country. These fears were based largely on uncertainty at the time. Although Justice Souter had previously worked as New Hampshire's Attorney General, an Associate Justice on New Hampshire's Supreme Court, and then on the First Circuit Court of Appeals, he did not leave a significant paper trail. It was difficult to tell where he stood on constitutional issues, and the political left feared the worst, that President H.W. Bush was appointing him as a stealth justice to dramatically shift the Supreme Court to the right. These fears ended up being unfounded and somewhat laughable, because Justice Souter soon began aligning more with the liberal wing of the court, leading many conservatives to feel that President Bush had made a serious error. It's a lesson that you can never really predict how a justice is going to behave once you give him a lifetime appointment and he can do whatever he wants. And in fact, rather than ending Beth Ann Farragher's chance for freedom, Justice Souter's opinion ultimately threw her a life raft. He began by noting the problem disrupting the nation's court system, stating, quote, Since the court's decision in meritor, courts of appeals had struggled to derive manageable standards to govern employer liability for hostile environment harassment perpetrated by supervisory employees. Unquote. But the court would not discard Meritor. Instead, holding to precedent, the law would need to be built from its foundation in some way. This meant examining the issue with the second restatement of agency and acknowledging that there could not be automatic liability for a hostile work environment caused by an employer's agents. Turning to the 11th Circuit's opinion, the court noted that it had considered whether the two supervisors were acting within the scope of their employment when they engaged in the harassing conduct and concluded they had not. This decision was not unusual because unwelcome remarks and touching were motivated by individual desires and served no purpose for the employer. Classic detour and frolics. But these lines of cases also stood in tension with other situations where the scope of employment was held to be more broad than what was commonly understood. Some cases allowed for liability for intentional torts that were not motivated to serve the employer. In one of my favorite examples from the opinion, the court brought up one case where a company was found liable for a drunken sailor who had returned to his ship and opened valves flooding a dry dock, damaging the dry dock and the ship. Liability had attached in that case because the conduct was reasonably foreseeable to the employer. You can almost hear Judge Suter thinking, come on. We are going to accept liability for this drunken sailor case, but not hostile work environment situations? He seemed to suggest he might be willing to find that harassing conduct should be within the scope of employment because it was one of the normal risks to be borne by the business and was foreseeable. But he didn't do that, recognizing that the scope of employment analysis was pretty muddled and difficult to evaluate. He opted to sidestep the issue entirely. Instead, as I mentioned earlier, he and the court decided to hang their hats on the exception from the restatement, which said liability could still attach even if conduct was outside the scope of employment if the agent was aided in accomplishing the tort by the existence of the agency relation. As a matter of common sense, a harassing supervisor is always assisted in his misconduct by the supervisory relationship. The agency relationship affords contact with employees to harass, It gives the supervisor a captive audience. The employees may also fear to report the supervisor because of fears of retaliation by virtue of the supervisor's position. The big problem with accepting this argument, though, like I said before, is that it suggests supervisor harassment will automatically lead to liability for the employer, which was foreclosed by Meritor and which the majority of the justices did not want to approve. The court, like everyone else, was really in a bind here. So how did they get around this problem? Well, there were two options. First, the court could require proof of some affirmative invocation of authority from the supervisor. Justice Souter did not like this idea, though, because from the victim's perspective, the supervisor's authority is always present, whether it was expressly advertised or not. The standard also seemed like a ripe way to create litigation between express an implied invocation of authority the second option was to recognize an affirmative defense where the employer would have the burden to show it exercised reasonable care to avoid harassment and to eliminate it when it might occur and that the employee had failed to act with reasonable care to take advantage of the employer's safeguards and prevent harm the majority ultimately decided to go with this approach they had 3 reasons first It fit well with Title VII's primary objective to provide redress and avoid harm. Second, the EEOC had already issued a policy statement enjoining employers to establish a complaint procedure designed to encourage victims of harassment to come forward. An affirmative defense would align with this policy statement. Finally, an affirmative defense also fit with general damages theory where an individual had a duty to mitigate and prevent their own harm. But notice what reason is not listed here. Any statutory language and any language from the restatement. The Supreme Court was running in a direction largely untethered from any statutory rule. It was charting a new course and engaging in lawmaking like a traditional common law court. The court then set down a block of new rules and a joint holding with the Ellerth case. As it's the reason we're all here today, I will read it in full. Quote, An employer is subject to vicarious liability to a victimized employee for an actionable, hostile environment created by a supervisor with immediate or successively higher authority over the employee. When no tangible employment action is taken, a defending employer may raise an affirmative defense to liability or damages, subject to proof by a preponderance of the evidence. The defense comprises two necessary elements. A that the employer exercised reasonable care to prevent and correct promptly any sexually harassing behavior and b that the plaintiff employee unreasonably failed to take advantage of any preventative or corrective opportunities provided by the employer or to avoid harm otherwise while proof that an employer has promulgated an anti-harassment policy with complaint procedure is not necessary in every instance As a matter of law, the need for a stated policy suitable to the employment circumstances may appropriately be addressed in any case when litigating the first element of the defense. And while proof that an employee failed to fulfill the corresponding obligation of reasonable care to avoid harm is not limited to showing an unreasonable failure to use any complaint procedure provided by the employer, a demonstration of such failure will normally suffice to satisfy the employer's burden under the second element of the defense. No affirmative defense is available, however, when the supervisor's harassment culminates in a tangible employment action, such as discharge, demotion, or undesirable reassignment." Wow, that was a mouthful. So, what had the court just done? Although not really based on any law, these new rules provided much more clarity than before. The Supreme Court decided that the distinction between quid pro quo and hostile work environment cases was not useful to resolving the scope of employer liability. The focus would now be on tangible employment actions like hiring, firing, etc. If a tangible employment action like a termination occurred, the company would be on the hook without a defense. However, when it was a straight hostile work environment case without tangible employment actions, the affirmative defense would apply. This ensured there was no automatic liability in hostile work environment cases in compliance with Meritor's previous holding. A negligence standard would not be applied. Applying these new rules, Judge Souter found the city of Boca Raton was out of luck. The record showed that the city had entirely failed to disseminate its policy against sexual harassment among the Beach employees, and that its officials made no attempt to keep track of the conduct of supervisors like Terry and Silverman. As a matter of law, then, the city could not be found to have exercised reasonable care to prevent the supervisors' harassing conduct. There was, thus, no reason to send the case back to the district court for more fact-finding. The judgment of the 11th Circuit was reversed. The decision of the district court awarding Farragher $1 under Title VII, was reinstated. The case soon became a sensation. As the Washington Post reported on the Farragher and Ellerth decisions at the time, quote, Employers are responsible for the sexual misconduct of supervisors, even if they knew nothing about the behavior, the Supreme Court ruled yesterday. The decision sets a strict new standard for harassment on the job and raises the stakes, for companies accused of permitting it in their workplaces. No other term in history has produced so many rulings on the topic of sexual harassment, and the combined effect of these decisions yielded an unequivocal message to American business. Sexual misconduct is to be taken seriously, and any company that doesn't can expect to pay a price." The Supreme Court decision also came at a heightened time of public awareness, especially after charges of a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by Paula Jones against Bill Clinton that same year. Beth Ann Farragher felt vindicated by the decision, and she believes the Supreme Court's ruling in her case helped prevent sexual harassment by requiring employers to take affirmative steps, such as implementing formal policies and sensible complaint procedures. Indeed, with the affirmative defense in place, it now became essential for businesses to create anti-harassment policies, to distribute those policies enforce them and provide training to show they exercised reasonable care to prevent and correct harassment this was the way to prevent future liability as a result the case dramatically increased harassment training and cottage industries to develop effective harassment policies multiple avenues for complaint submission including hotlines also were instituted to encourage victims to come forward as you might expect not everyone was happy with this decision The twin rulings in Farragher and Ellerth were a bridge too far for Justices Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia. They opined that the court was manufacturing a new rule. Worse still, although the court recognized an affirmative defense based solely on its divination of Title VII's gestalt, it provided shockingly little guidance about how employers can actually avoid vicarious liability. They predicted more litigation would erupt, despite the court's efforts to prevent that. Aside from these issues, other attorneys and academics argued that the negligence standard was sufficient. There was no need to create a heightened level of liability for companies. The court's new rule increased the costs of implementing anti harassment policies, required higher levels of administration and oversight, and sometimes placed blame on companies when they did not deserve to be blamed. But, be that as it may, the Supreme Court had spoken. There was no final appeal here. The Supreme Court faced a formidable task when creating the Farragher-Ellerth Defense and determining the scope of employer liability for the acts of supervisory agents. The opinion took into account many different theories of liability, and at the end of the day, the court tried to find middle ground that could satisfy both employers and employees. Yes, a company would now face strict liability for harassment by supervisors If they took a tangible employment action like firing the employee. But if it was a hostile work environment case, the employer could provide an affirmative defense that they had exercised reasonable care and the employee had failed to follow their policies. The emphasis on policy enforcement also incentivized the spread of harassment awareness and informal means to address it in the workplace. Additionally, even though Justice Thomas and Scalia may have thought the rule was unclear, was it really? It cleared up the court splits regarding quid pro quo harassment and whether to apply a negligence standard. The affirmative defense language provides pretty concise elements, and no doubt the Farragher and Ellerth cases would have been much easier to resolve if they had had the rule beforehand. As for the next criticism, did the Supreme Court just make up this standard, and did the justices overreach their authority? Well, there is no doubt that the court did depart from Title Seven and the restatement, and engaged in some pretty extraordinary lawmaking. However, the Supreme Court does have the authority to create a federal common law for federal statutes and terms which may be ambiguous. They did it before. We saw that in Episodes 3 and 4, when we discussed the disparate impact theory of discrimination, a substantive rule, and the McDonnell-Douglas burden-shifting framework, a procedural rule. It is also important to note that Congress has not come back and overturned this ruling. The case has been with us over 20 years now, albeit with slight modifications here and there, and it has been extended to other discrimination statutes and other statutory schemes as well. Whether it was legitimate rulemaking, judicial despotism, or something in between, I'll let you make up your own mind. But, there is no doubt that Farragher versus the city of Boca Raton brought order to a very chaotic mess of cases. It clarified the scope of employer liability and provided a defense for employers if they proactively tried to prevent harassment. The court did something that is very hard to do by satisfying a large group of stakeholders. In the end, Beth Ann Farragher appears to be satisfied with the decision. However, several years after the case was decided, she reported in 2005 that she had still not received her $1 from the city of Boca Raton. If she ever gets it, she says she plans to frame it on her office wall as a reminder that anyone can make a difference. I think it will make a great conversation starter. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends.